in another church building many miles away, many years ago, I uh, was leading a worship service, and there was someone who left in the middle of the service, and just by the way that they got up and left, gave me a sense that there was something wrong. Uh, and they had stayed long enough to have filled out, you know, a connection card type of thing. So I had their phone number, and I don't remember if it was later that day or early the next morning, I gave them the call to ask what, what had happened. You know, was there something in particular going on in their lives or in the service? And, and well, I got an earful. And the problem, they said, started in the parking lot. So you know it had to be good, right? As they entered the parking lot and they scanned, as they're looking for a new church to attend, they noticed the significant lack of the proper bumper stickers. This was their serious complaint to me, that they did not see the bumper stickers they thought should be in a good Bible-believing church parking lot. And then they entered the building, and as they kept their radar tuned, I said something about a a reading of the Psalms, and they heard me saying that I was one of them. That what I said made me and gave me an association with someone who in their eyes was not faithful. Someone who was not serious about the Bible. And I tried to explain where I was coming from and that that in fact was not where I was, and that was not an association that I would value. And I tried to explain that we have all kinds of people in the congregation, and there are different bumper stickers, and really I'm not sure that's the most important thing to focus on. And we parted in friendly ways. But I wonder if you have ever experienced yourself that that kind of need to defend yourself or your associations Maybe no one's even asked, and you're, you're, you feel like, I've got to explain why I was with that person, why I was in that place, right? Those kind of things pop up in our lives, and, and there is, as this person demonstrated, I think, very often, both in ourselves as we feel compelled to explain, and as we begin to question what other people are doing, there is a lack. Of, of joy. There is, and as I experienced with that phone call with this person, just this sort of, uh, I don't know to use a technical term, grumpiness, this criticality, majoring on minors. And it was what Jesus experienced in his day. And in fact, we're looking at Luke chapter 15 uh, for the next couple of weeks. We're going to look this week at Just verses 1 through 10 of Luke 15, two parables paired together yet again, where Jesus explains his associations and and faces criticism from folks who said, you know, you basically spend too much time and you get too close to bad people, to those people. And Jesus tells a couple of stories, a couple of parables to explain what he's doing, and even more than that, to invite people in to experience the great joy that he has in his mission. The great joy that is in fact in heaven as we embark on God's mission and do what's necessary to 
to follow him faithfully. So if you would, read with me Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10 of God's holy, inspired, infallible, life-giving, joy-fulfilling word. Would you read with me? Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's Word. Lord, please bless uh, our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes, our will as we look at Your Word. Would You give us more understanding? Would You bring us deeper into the joy that You offer as we take part in Your mission? Meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we were planning the sermon series, I had not thought about how often joy would show up. Uh, here it is again, and, and we will talk about it in terms of celebration next week with the next parable, Lord willing. Uh, but we remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here and with us, we looked at the couple of parables that talked about the joy of finding the kingdom of God. Maybe you stumble on it like some buried treasure. You know, it's like, oh, so joyful. Or maybe you're searching for it and you find it like a pearl of great value that then you can turn around and sell for a lot of money. That those joy, that joy is available as you find the kingdom. Well, that was more focused on us, right? In this passage today, in these two parables, it is heaven that is experiencing great joy. It is God's joy that rings out throughout these two parables. The, the word joy shows up in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 9, and in verse 10. It rings through these two parables, this note of joy. Essentially saying, in case you missed it, there is joy in heaven over just one who is lost coming home. Just one. Notice it's one out of a hundred. It's one out of ten. 
that brings joy, that not one of those would be lost, that all are in the community back together or in the coin collection or the wallets, where they belong, back in the flock, back together with their owner. You know, this joy Jesus makes clear in verse 7 is in heaven. It's more joy over one sinner in heaven. There's joy in the presence of the angels, verse 10, over one sinner who repents. And Lord willing, we will dig in next week as we look at the parable of the lost sons, I would say. Uh, Or as you might know, at the prodigal of the parable son, the son who went away, verses 11 to 32. We'll dig into this idea of repentance, Lord willing, next week. So we'll talk about that, but right now, the focus of these two parables is not so much on repentance and what it looks like. In fact, the next parable that Jesus tells demonstrates what repentance looks like, but doesn't actually use the word. These two parables, they're focused on joy, on the joy that comes along with just one who is lost coming home. And, and how, how can we enter into that joy? To enter into that joy, you have to understand the source of this joy, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. To recognize that there is joy in heaven over just one who is lost coming home because God values everyone, not just some. We can experience this joy as we grasp this idea that God values everyone, not just some. And the reality is you look for what you value. That's how we know that that God values everyone. The proof is that He's here looking, making an effort as the one who is trying to find. You see what He says in verse 4 of Luke 15. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go after the one until he finds it? Again, uh, the woman who has lost a coin, we read in verse 8. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? You know, in those days, if you had windows in your house, they would be very small. So in the daytime, right, you would need to light a lamp. And it still wouldn't be very dark, especially in the corners where the light's not getting. So you you would make sense. You're trying to find a metal coin on a dirt or hard floor, and you sweep and you listen. Right? She's diligently moving furniture. She's seeking for this lost coin. And along with the ones seeking for the lost sheep, they search until they find it. Both parables say that same thing. Until it is found. Verse 4, verse 8. If you flip it around and think, well, what if you're not really that invested, right? You you might say, well, well, that's enough. I mean, 99 out of 100, that's an A plus, is it not? You know, what's one? 9 out of 10, that's that's a 90%. That's probably an A these days. At worst case, A minus, maybe B plus. Man, that's pretty good, right? The owner of the coins, the owner of the sheep says, I don't want to lose any. I want all of them. I value everyone, not just some. 
Now, there's no indication here, by the way, that, that there's a neglect of the 99. Sometimes, you know, when we're looking at parables, and especially this one, people will, will, will make big deals about things that are secondary, right? To go find the one, they have to leave the 99. It says uh, here, what's the word? In, uh, leaves the 99 in the open pasture. Uh, the sense there is, it could be wilderness, desert, you know, where there are big, wide open grassy fields, opportunity to find even little tiny bits of grass. Uh, it doesn't say, are, are there other shepherds? Usually there were. A flock that big is not going to be shepherded by one person. All those things are not the point, right? The point Jesus is making is you leave the 99 because you value the one that is lost. You value the one that is lost. You value every one. Especially and even the ones who are off because they chose to go astray. Because they're off doing bad things. You, you notice in the first couple of verses, Luke verse, 15, verse 1 of chapter 15 says that all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Him, that is Jesus, to listen to Him. And, and then the Pharisees, verse 2, and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. You know, I don't, do you talk that way today? You know, like, oh, you're hanging out with those sinners. Maybe if you're joking and you're in a church context, nobody talks that way, right? That was the way people spoke back then about a category of people. Um, and Luke is just, in a sense, speaking the truth. Some of the people that came to Jesus were tax collectors by occupation. That was their job. Some of the people who came to Jesus happened to be sinners. People who did wrong by the common definition of the day. Those who did not live up to the moral code of most people. Their definition of right and wrong. And especially of that definition that was developed by the scribes, those who studied the law of God, and applied and attempted to live out by the Pharisees, those who tried their best to say, this is what right and wrong means based on the scribes' definitions. I'm going to do my best to live it out. That's the code here. That's what would make someone a sinner is to, to live in those ways. And, and very often to live in very flagrant, immoral ways uh, like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet back in Luke chapter 7, towards the end of that chapter, she was described as a sinner. And if Jesus knew who she was, that she was a sinner, he would not let her anoint him. Most likely this woman was a prostitute. Someone who was paid to pretend to be married to different men. Talking in code there, grown-ups. You know, that's... That's what a sinner was. Someone who did not live up to the moral code that most people accepted, especially the religious leaders who had a lot of influence over the people. And the most notorious of the sinners having their own category were those tax collectors. And they were usually technically uh, subcontractors of someone who owned a contract with the Roman government to collect taxes. And they, they were usually Gentiles. They were not Jews. They would own the contract 
and have rights to collect all the taxes in this area or that area. And they would hire local people, Jewish people, who would then get paid by the tax collector by taking a portion of the taxes that they collected from other Jewish people. As one scholar put it, this system of tax collection afforded a collector many opportunities to exercise greed and unfairness, and tax collectors were particularly hated and despised as a class. On top of that, he says, a strict Israelite was further offended by the fact that tax collectors had to maintain continual contact with non-Israelites in the course of their work. This rendered an Israelite tax collector ceremonially unclean. They would be handling money which had touched other people, contaminating them, defiling them in the eyes of the Pharisees. They would be engaging and spending regular time with unbelieving Gentiles, becoming unclean. And then on top of that, they would cheat. They would take unnecessary taxes. They would line their own pockets. So someone like Zacchaeus, the wee little man in Luke 19, who wanted to see Jesus, who was not only a tax collector but a sinner, was very much despised. And Jesus invited himself over to his house. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Coming to your house today. It's a kid's song. Jesus ended that interaction with Zacchaeus, Luke tells us in Luke 19, verse 10, saying, the Son of Man, the way he referred to himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Same word as the lost sheep, the lost coin. God values everyone, not just some. He works hard laboring to find them, to bring them in. He takes the initiative as the finder to look for them. You know, when you're motivated, when you value something and it's lost, you're going to go look for it. Right? You don't have to be told to. You're not guilted into it. You don't even necessarily feel a sense of obligation. You, you, you go look for what you value. Just one sheep is lost. I value that one sheep. I'm going to go find it. Just one coin. I value that one coin. I'm going to go look for it. The lost things, the sheep, the coin, they're not sitting there saying, hey, come find me. Please come find me. The lost sheep, more often than not, is going to go off somewhere and lay down and be absolutely no help in being found. And in fact, that's probably why the shepherd's carrying it on his shoulders. Because it wasn't going to come otherwise. He goes to find it. He takes the initiative. He goes and looks. The woman sweeps diligently, moves the furniture, tries to find this one coin. She she's lights a lamp. She's looking. She's listening. She's paying attention. She took the initiative. She wants to find it because she values it. You look for what you value. Kids show us this all the time. I've heard it told in some houses, not mine, that when, you, when a kid is looking for something, you know, what's their first thing? You know, go find your shoes. I don't know where they are. Where are my shoes? Where did you have them last? Right? You ever say those things? Where's your backpack? I don't know. Did you look for it? No. They, why do they not, why do they not look? Why do they not find it? Why do they ask first? Two reasons. One, it might be they're lazy. They might just, you know, they might have looked hard. They might not find it, right? But more often, they don't care. They don't value the shoes. 
They're fine running out with other shoes. You value the shoes, right? And more often than not, what are you going to do? You're going to go help them look for it. Because you value them wearing the shoes. They don't, they don't care. They don't want to wear the shoes. They don't want the backpack. They don't care. But if they lost their phone or their ear pods, what's the first reaction? Ripping sofa pillows off, right? Looking under the rug. They, may, they might start cleaning. I know I've done some good cleaning the most times when I'm looking for something. To be under the bed, you'd be like, oh, wow, what are these things? Is that an animal? No, it's a dust bunny. You look for what you value. Right? You, you don't look for what you don't value. You know, there's no indication in this passage, and there's every indication, in fact, that of the motivation that you go looking for what you value. Not out of guilt or obligation, or because the lost are begging to be found like a lost child in an amusement park. You go looking for what you value. And the Pharisees, they were, they were basically like, we're good. Metaphorically and, and literally. They said, we're good. Meaning what? We're, we're good people. We do right things. You know, and we really, we're okay with who we have. We, we, we're not interested in finding others to come in and, and join us. We're good. Now maybe if you clean up your act, if you get it together, and if you say you want to be in, and if you prove that you're worthy of being a part of our company, then maybe you could join us as Pharisees, as the set-apart ones. Their, their name comes from a Hebrew word that means split or, 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 or separate. That's their identity. That we're the good people. We're in. We're good. We don't need those people. We don't value them. Especially those that are obviously doing bad things. And then Jesus comes along. And he says, I value everyone, not just some. I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to heal the sick. I came to find the sinners, the people who are broken. A doctor does not come to treat well people. A doctor comes to heal the sick, Jesus says. I come to find the lost. This word for, for lost here uh, appears in verse 4 two times, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9. It shows up in the next parable in, in verse 17 and 24 and 32. It can have a range of meaning from one end of basically you know, perishing, being destroyed, to a little over to the side of just being lost or losing. So the sense here is what? A sheep goes astray, it's lost, it hasn't been destroyed. But that, that, that range is, you know, that's the range of the sense here. So you will see it sometimes translated. In fact, in verse 17, it's translated as dying, be, perishing. That's the same word. It appears in Luke 9, 24, where Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? This is, this is the, the sense, even in Luke, of, of, of this word. That there is a, a separation. That there, there is in, in the lost, the idea of being lost is that you are apart from the place of health, like a sheep outside of the protective place of the shepherd. Like the coin on the floor somewhere and not in the owner's hands or wallet to be used, but in danger of being lost and trampled on. This word lost, in fact, appears in, in, in another verse. You might have heard this one. It goes this way. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. That word. Not be lost. They shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the contrast here. To, to say that, that someone is a sinner is to say that they, they are destroying themselves. They are in the danger of being lost Forever, they are not experiencing eternal life or the hope of life. They are in danger of ultimate destruction beyond even this life into the next, of perishing forevermore. And Jesus says, that's why I came. I came for those people. I came that they might not have a life like that and a future like that, but they might have a hope and a future. This is how much God values the lost, how much God values you, that He would send Jesus into this world, that He would give His only begotten Son, His only Son, that all you have to do is believe in Him and receive His work on the cross to know that you could be forgiven, to know that you are no longer lost but now found, to know that in Jesus' death, on that cross and paying the penalty for your sins that all of your punishment was paid. Him remaining under the power of death and rising victorious is a promise that you too, if your faith is in Jesus, will rise again. And that you can even now experience that life. The hope and future. Breaking the power of sin. That you don't have to make those same decisions any longer by the power of the Spirit of God working in you. That, that you can... You can do better than you thought you could. And you can find forgiveness. Your conscience can be eased. The shame can be done away with that you can have life. That, that Satan no longer bring fear into your life that you can be free from his power. The world, the flesh, and the devil can, can lose their impact on you as you come to Jesus. This joy, that's the joy in heaven. Just one who is lost coming home because God values everyone, not just some. And He invites you to share in that joy. To share the joy of finding. God invites you into this joy. Notice, that's so clear in this passage, that God invites into this joy of finding. You see it in verse 5. You know, He has a hundred sheep. He goes and finds the one. Verse 5, when he is found, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. I have found the lost sheep. Look at verse 8. 
The woman, ten silver coins, looks for them. Verse 9, when she has found it, it doesn't say she, she has joy there. I don't think that means she didn't have joy, but I think Jesus is very intentional. What he does say, he uses the same word, a, a different word that, that combines the word with and rejoicing. Rejoice with, the same language, you see it there. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with. Rejoice with me, the man who found the sheep. Said the same thing to his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I found the coin that is lost. Rejoice with me. And it's not just the, the people in the parables. Look at Jesus' interpretation in verse 10. In the same way, he says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God, Jesus is saying, look, when a lost person who is, is, is brought from this place of destruction and perishing into a new life and a hope, as they come, God is seeking them that we might rejoice with them. That we might find this joy, not just personally, but together. There is joy. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? There is joy in personally sharing the story of Jesus with someone that they come to a saving faith. There is joy in that. I've experienced it. It's wonderful. It's amazing. There's joy. Personally, as we see someone we love, whether we're the main part of it or just a bystander, we see someone that we love, someone we're personally associated with, they come to faith. There's joy in that, right? Yet, you could be faithfully labeling to share the gospel and never see one convert. You look through missionary histories of the world, there are, there are folks who labored for years and years and years where God, they felt God called, they never saw a convert. You could, you could be just called to another ministry and not have that opportunity to do frontline evangelism and sharing with the lost. You could be praying and witnessing to your friends and family, and, and they might not never come to the Lord, or that might be a really long time. So do you get to share in this joy? Yes. Yes, if, if you broaden your perspective a little. We could share in this joy. We can express that we value others, not just some. Right? We can all experience that, and there's joy in that. There is tremendous joy in that. That we can rejoice in the finding without guilt over gifts that we don't have, without a sense of obligation that leads us out in a grumpy way. We can have this joyful Experience without feeling judged for serving in other ways. And maybe God is calling you to go out on the street and witness. Maybe He's calling you to go door to door and share the gospel. People are called that way. Not everyone is. We're all called to experience the joy of finding the lost. We're all called to value everyone, not just some. So how do we do that? Here's a way. Here's a way. We're going we're gonna to sing. We're going we're to do the Lord's Supper here in a minute, right? You can do this right now. You can apply this right now. As we go into whatever our next song is in a minute or two, right? Um, on Sunday mornings, you could, you could just look around. They worship God, but you know, just occasionally look around and look at other people worshiping. Don't stare. Don't, don't, don't make people, you know, don't creep people out, right? <laughs> but just look. Take a moment and say, isn't it wonderful that this person... Say, Gary, 
is, is worshiping with their hands up to 10,000 reasons, right? And you might be sitting there thinking, how many times do we say 10,000 reasons? 10,000 reasons. It's like so repetitive. Oh, this song annoys me. I wish we were singing a hymn, okay? That's what kills joy, right? The critical thing. What would, what would enhance your joy is to say, you know what, isn't it beautiful that there are people that this song is resonating with? And yeah, okay, we set theological parameters. We don't just sing anything. It's not all about emotion. But isn't it beautiful that God has made some people that the music hits them and they sing with the joy and you can see it on their face. I can celebrate that. Even if it's not the thing that brings me joy. And then moments later, you know, maybe you're sitting there and, and, and you see someone singing with gusto, Savior like a shepherd lead us. Oh, how many verses is this song? Is it ever going to end? Okay, we get it. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. The language is kind of weird. Does anybody talk like this? You know, instead of, in turn, turn outward and say, isn't it amazing that there are people that this is scratching their itch and they are worshiping with gusto. They are singing loud and joyfully in this. I can find joy in this. That, that one has been found and they were lost. And that one has been found and she was lost. And here they are. Maybe they're from a different tongue or tribe or nation than me. And here they are. Maybe they're just a lot younger or maybe they're just a lot older or maybe they look a different, different. Whatever it is. And they're sitting here experiencing the joy of God here together. That is beautiful. And it's a way we can enter into that joy and say, God, thank you. Thank you for finding that one. Even the one that is different than me, thank you for finding them. But you know, there's even a trap in that. And one of the things that can steal our joy is an overemphasis on us at all. And so I'm not saying to overemphasize that. This is a practical way. It's, a, it's maybe a baby step. Maybe it's a bigger step. I don't know for you, depending on your challenges, right? To say, you know what, there's a joy in that, that God has brought us together. And don't get me wrong, I highly value this. I get the best seat in the house. I get to see y'all. That's why I took the picture when we had Easter this year, because you guys didn't get to see what I saw. From up here, seeing so many people singing with joy to Jesus, seeing this place full, it's beautiful. I get that seat every week. I love it. I would not want to trade it. And I have to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying to hear that God values everyone, not just some. I, I need to not be critical of, of those other churches that I see online, especially in our denomination, that are just monochrome, if you know what I mean. We have such a beautiful gift of being diverse here, right? Celebrate it. It's not a way to judge. On top of that, to say, you know what? In fact, that's even the wrong category. I have to listen to Jesus to say he values everyone, not just some. And then he offers the opportunity for me to share in this joy as I realize that God values the people of Upper Darby all around us. That God values that some and not just this sum, that God values, and I got to think about, well, how, how can I share the joy of finding them? How can you share the joy of finding people out here? And you could go. You could go out and witness. 
There are people who do it. Uh, talk to Danton Barr. Talk to Wally Ahmad. Uh, come on whatever night they're doing it now. I think it's a Wednesday night. I'm not positive. I could be wrong on that. Uh, might be Thursday now. Switch around a couple of times. Pastor Shibu, we're going to have a, a training seminar coming up in the spring. Stay tuned for details of how you can be equipped to share your faith just in a simple way with anybody, right? That's maybe the way God is calling you to experience the joy of seeing the lost come home. But a very even simpler way you can do it, if that's not perhaps the way God is calling you, you can pray for those who do that. You could talk to your own family, your own children about the joy of the gospel, share it with them. You could, and this is the biggest thing we could each probably do, just as we would maybe look around here and see we're different people, different things strike us, we could recognize that, you know what? If we want to value the people in the community around us, we might have to do things a little differently than we would want to do them without compromising the gospel, we might think of changing things. And I don't have any, honestly, don't have anything in particular in mind. I'm talking about the general openness that says, if I'm going to value the, everyone, not just some, I'm going to value them more than my personal preferences and convenience. So that applies to singing, right? Songs. We will have a diverse selection of songs and expressions of worship because we are a diverse people. And if it's going to be our, our worship, it's going to be. And if we're going to reach people who are different than us, we probably need to think about how do we make it less of a barrier to get them through the door? You know, how, how do we follow up from Kids Fair when we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds? I think almost every kid that was there had at least two parents, if not three as well as other siblings with them. Do the math. We had 500 people in this building, in that basement. And are we giving them an experience where they have a good association? Yeah, we give them the gospel, right? And then, and then what are we doing? Right? We want to follow up. And we want to keep making those experiences. We want to express them. We value them. And we're not, they're not just targets for evangelism, that we actually care about them. And that's why it's beautiful, the idea of having the preschool prayer partners and having a little cutout, because you're praying for this little person you will never meet, most likely. And we can encourage their family and say, we're praying for you. We're praying for your children. We want what's best for them. And many families, whatever their religious background, and hardly any of our kids are from Christian homes, but they value prayer. And that would encourage them to say, we want what's for them. We value them. I hope you realize that that's a part of our tradition, in fact, of valuing this community, of, of making some changes. In fact, making some huge changes in, in our history to say we value this community. That we, we are willing to change and be transformed that we might reach the people around us. The biggest evidence of that was over 30 years ago when we called my predecessor, Pastor Tim Whitmer, to this church which was then called J.R. Miller Memorial Presbyterian Church. That just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And one of the things we said was, you know what? Let's be about the community 
Let's express a value for the people around us. And let's call ourselves, even before it was a reality, let's call ourselves a community church, a crossroads community church. And so we had some people, right? And then it is grew. We are here for the community. And so we offer things like ESL to help people in this community meet a very real need. We have Deacon's Mercy Funds that help people meet very real material and physical needs in the church and out of the church. We have the preschool to help children at a subsidized low cost by us and our graciousness to, to, to raise them up, to share the gospel with them, but also prepare them for kindergarten. We have all of these things going on, brothers and sisters, including the Kids Fair, Camp Treasure Island, that are about us expressing this value. And if you're not aware of those, you can tap into the joy by talking to Ann Kelly, by talking to Nancy Pross, talking to Rosie Ledoux, talking to Ron Bessels, talk, talk to people engaged in the ministry. Consider where God would have you to serve, to pray, to find a way to enter into this joy, to share in the joy of heaven that comes with just one who is lost coming home. Because it's rooted in this God who values every one, not just some. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Thank you for saving me. When I was lost, you did the effort. You pursued me and saved me from death and destruction and brought me to life. Thank you for each one here that was lost and is now found. Thank you, O Lord, for those who are still lost, whether they would realize it or not, whether they're struggling with a sense of meaning and purpose and wondering what's going on, whether they're struggling with addictions and brokenness. Lord, thank you that they're here. Lord, may we experience the joy of seeing them found. Would you work in their hearts? We pray, Lord Jesus, lifting all these things to your throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.